I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about a new documentary about Justice Thomas, recent arguments, and we're joined by Texas Supreme Court Justice Brett Busby and his equally impressive wife, Erin. So earlier this week, I went to the premiere screening of a wonderful new documentary about Justice Thomas called Created Equal, Justice Thomas in His Own Words. And that's exactly what it was. It was a compilation of interviews with the justice himself. The producer, Michael Pack, sat down with Justice Thomas for about 30 hours and recorded these videos. And it's just great. The justice's wife, Ginny Thomas, made a couple of appearances, but it was no one else. Other than that, it was just him. And it goes through his whole life story, growing up dirt poor in Pinpoint, Georgia, you know, wandering the streets and being raised by his grandparents and especially his grandfather, who was pretty tough on him, but he learned a lot of really important lessons from him. And we have a short clip to play from that. I was supposed to go to school in the afternoon. My mother wasn't there to make me go, because she had to go to work. So I wandered the streets by myself. I was six. You were hungry and didn't know when you'd eat, and cold and didn't know when you'd be warm again. The documentary also goes through the justices entering and leaving seminary, being a radical leftist in college, his conversion to conservatism, and he goes through his Supreme Court nomination and hearing. And I think one of the funniest parts to me was when these clips of Joe Biden at the hearing, and he was kind of harping on Justice Thomas, giving him a hard time for, in his view, wanting to read natural law into the Constitution. And then it like cuts back to Justice Thomas today saying, I have no idea what he's talking about. Um, <laughs> and it goes back to Biden. And there are these clips being like, you and I know what, you know, natural law is and what this is. And it was just it was funny watching that because like Joe Biden is sitting around or reading Harry Jaffa or John Finnis in his in his spare time. It's like Joe Biden has no idea about any of this. And so those are really funny. Um, Justice Thomas also talks about the Anita Hill hearings and it was pretty raw and powerful. And he talks about how he dealt with the lies being told about him and the hatred and the racism he experienced as a result of that process. And he talks about knowing the real goal through that process was to destroy him because he was the, quote, wrong kind of black man. We have another clip here. Well, it's stereotypes draped in sanctimony and self-congratulation. There's a different sets of rules for different people. If you criticize a, a black person who's more liberal, you're racist. Whereas if you can do whatever to me or to now Ben Carson, uh, and that's fine because you're not really black because you're not doing what we expect black people to do. It's a tactic, and when people see it being successful, they don't realize they're going to be the next ones in the Tower of London. 
it was a very moving documentary, and I highly recommend that everyone go see it. It will be in theaters in about 20 cities at first, starting in January. And then PBS will air it at the end of May of next year. And we're going to play a longer clip of Created Equal at the end of the episode. So be sure to stay tuned for that. Moving on, we got a listener question. This comes from William Bell on Twitter. And he said, out of curiosity, have y'all heard anything regarding National Review's cert petition in National Review versus Man? They reported the other day that SCOTUS has postponed the decision by two weeks, which they interpret as a good sign, or at least not a bad one. So I thought we could talk for a minute about what this case is about and then maybe discuss what, what could be going on there. So what is this case about? Uh, National Review published a blog years ago now by Mark Stein criticizing Penn State professor Michael Mann's hockey stick graph on climate change, calling it fraudulent. Uh, so then Mann brought a libel suit against National Review. Uh, the case ended up going to the D.C. Court of Appeals, which is the state court equivalent uh, in, in the district. And that court held that a jury could impose defamation liability on National Review for writing that Mann was exaggerating the risks of climate change by using misleading statistical analyses. So the court ruled that the jury could treat statements challenging the validity of the hockey stick graph as provably false representations of fact and impose liability without running afoul of the First Amendment. According to the court, a reasonable jury could construe statements as conveying some objective verifiable fact about man's conduct or integrity. So National Review filed a cert petition, and the issues uh, in the cert, cert petition are whether the question of whether a statement contains a provably false factual connotation is a question of law for the court, as most federal circuit courts have held, or is a question of fact for the jury when the statement is ambiguous, as many state high courts have held. And the, the second question in the cert petition is whether the First Amendment permits defamation liability for expressing a subjective opinion about a matter of scientific or political controversy, such as characterizing a statistical model about climate change as deceptive and calling its creation a form of scientific misconduct. So as of this week, the justices have considered this petition at six conferences. Uh, the, the first one was back in June, and the respondent, Michael Mann, had not filed his brief in response. Uh, so the court requested that he do so. Um, he did that over the summer, and the justices have now had five conferences to consider the case with the benefit of both sides' filings. So what's going on here? Well, a couple things could be happening. First, uh, the justices tend to relist cases that they are intending to, to grant review, so they have time to look into whether there are any sort of procedural issues that might prevent them from reaching the merits. They really, really don't like to dig cases, uh, and dig stands for dismissing as improvidently granted. So since they only take a small number of cases each term and they carefully select those cases, it seems to really frustrate the justices when something later, comes out later on uh, that prevents them from deciding the case. Uh, another possibility is that one of the justices is writing a dissent from denial of cert. So if the court decides to grant the petition, we could know as early as this week, but we will definitely keep an eye on this case and report back what happens. And as a disclosure, my firm filed an amicus brief in that case. Moving on to grants, there was one grant this week, Lou versus Security and Exchange Commission. And the issue here is whether the SEC may seek and obtain disgorgement from a court as equitable relief for a securities law violation, even though the Supreme Court has determined that such disgorgement is a penalty. Sounds um, riveting. Yeah. <laughs> so the SEC in this case sued petitioners Charles Liu and Xin Wang 
for violating securities laws. They basically cheated a bunch of Chinese investors out of $27 million. Um, those investors were trying to get visas under a federal program where you can get a visa or have an easier time getting a visa if you invest in job creation in the United States. So under a statute, the SEC can only get injunctive relief, equitable relief, or civil monetary penalties when they bring these sorts of cases. But here, the SEC asked the court to order disgorgement, which is basically having to pay back any ill-gotten gains. But they wanted the money to go to the SEC also in this case. The district court granted that relief as well as an injunction and imposing a civil monetary penalty. Um, I think it was the maximum and the Ninth Circuit affirmed. And so the petitioners are arguing at the Supreme Court that disgorgement is a penalty under a 2017 Supreme Court opinion, Kokish versus SEC. And therefore, the SEC doesn't have the authority to ask for that relief. And the SEC, on the other hand, argues that it can still obtain disgorgement as an equitable remedy, which it does have the power to ask for. I noticed that the cert petition had a lot of quotes from an opinion by then-Judge Kavanaugh about (laughs) Kokish. That's subtle. (laughs) Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see if he takes a big interest in this case. So moving on to a couple of oral arguments, Um, we previewed them last week and the arguments happened this week. So first up was Kansas versus Glover. This is Kansas's final case, at least that's currently scheduled at the court this term. This is the case involving whether a police officer can make a traffic stop because the vehicle's owner has a suspended license, making the assumption that the driver is the owner. So does the officer need something more to have reasonable suspicion of criminal activity to then make the traffic stop? So Chief Justice John Roberts asked Glover's attorney, Sarah Harrington, about the probability that the driver of the car is going to be the owner. You know, he said, isn't it just common sense that there's a good chance he's the owner? Isn't that enough for reasonable suspicion? Justice Neil Gorsuch asked the Kansas Solicitor General Toby Kraus about whether uh, this common sense assumption would hold in the future, pointing out that the next generation uh, often rents cars. So should the court write a rule that could potentially have a short expiration date? Uh, Justice Sam Alito asked Sarah Harrington what other considerations an officer would need to take into account to have reasonable suspicion of criminal activity. You know, he he had a litany of, of suggestions, you know, trying to check with headquarters as to the basis for the license suspension, whether it's in an urban area or a rural area or someplace in between, whether it's a, a highway or a, a city street, whether it's raining, whether it's dark. Maybe whether it's a law-abiding community where people with suspended licenses never drive. Uh, And Justice Sonia Sotomayor suggested that maybe officers should try to visually ID the driver before making the stop to see if he or she matches the, the age and sex of the registered owner of the vehicle. The United States had divided argument time with the state of Kansas. And the assistant to the solicitor general, Michael Houston, said, you know, that wouldn't really be a safe option because officers are trained to keep their vehicles behind a suspect. Uh, Something else that was suggested would be for the officer to wait until there was a traffic violation. But Justice Brett Kavanaugh didn't like that. He said, you know, following the car around until it goes 31 and, you know, when the speed limit is 30 would would just be pretextual. A lot of the questions involve the fact that the officer here didn't testify at the hearing to suppress the evidence. Uh, Instead, the parties agreed to stipulate to the facts. And Justice Elena Kagan said, you know, the officer just needs to be present at the suppression hearing and say, based on my training and experience, I believe the driver was the owner. Uh, And he also would need to be available for cross-examination. Justice Gorsuch said, 
you know, that that seemed like asking for a magic incantation of words. And if that's all that's at issue here, he says, is that Kansas didn't put the officer on the stand uh, to say, in my experience, the driver's usually the owner of the car. Uh, He said, it seems to me that it's almost a formalism you're asking the court to endorse. Um, One uh, moment of levity was when uh, Justice Gorsuch adopted his take on a a New York accent when he was asking a question about the police officer. And Sarah Harrington helpfully pointed out that the case took place in Kansas. Um, I saw that she later tweeted that she wished she would have said, I guess we're not in Kansas anymore. (laughs) Uh, But it seems like many of the justices uh, were on board with, with the state Uh, of Kansas here, but we will see what happens when the opinion comes out. The justices also heard Maui versus Hawaii Wildlife Fund, which we also talked about last week. The question here is whether the Clean Water Act requires a permit when pollutants originate from a point source but are conveyed to navigable waters by a non-point source, such as groundwater. So again, as I explained last week, essentially the question is whether a party violates the Clean Water Act when it releases pollutants indirectly into navigable waters as opposed to directly. So Albert Lynn did a great job, and I think he anticipated pretty well the questions that the justices were going to care a lot about. He started off by making the point that this case is not about whether the releases from Maui's underground injection wells should be regulated at all, but how they should be regulated. So the activity there is going to be regulated one way or the other. But the real dispute is over whether Maui needs a permit or whether it's regulated under state law or other federal programs. You know, he said the question is whether the line falls between the Clean Water Act's federal point source program and its state law non-point source program. And Albert argued that the answer is in the text. And the text defines a point source as a discernible, confined, and discrete conveyance. So therefore, it's clear that... The trigger for point source permitting is not whether the pollutant, um, not where it comes from, but how it reaches navigable waters. And a permit's only required when a point source is the means of delivering pollutants to navigable waters. And he argued that respondents, you know, basically wanted to rewrite the statute to all but eviscerate the line between the point and the non-point source pollution, and this would radically change the status quo. And he specifically said it could affect more than 500,000 similar underground injection wells in the country and about 6,000 in Hawaii alone. The SG who argued in support of petitioners, they had divided time. Uh, Malcolm Stewart, I think he had a great analogy saying, he said, if my home, if at my home I pour whiskey from a bottle into a flask and then I bring the flask to a party at a different location and I pour whiskey into the punch bowl there, no one would say that I had added whiskey to the punch from the bottle. It would be true that the whiskey originated in the bottle. Its route was fairly traceable from the bottle to the punch bowl and it wound up in the punch bowl, but you wouldn't say it was added to the punch from the bottle. That makes me want to have some whiskey. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Same, if I liked whiskey. I'll take some gin instead. Bourbon Uh, for me. (laughs) uh, Justice Breyer was very concerned about entities being able to evade the statute by doing something like putting a pipe close, he said, 35 feet from the ocean or river, knowing that it would seep into the ground first and not directly into that body of water so they could avoid getting a permit. But Albert assured him that that scenario would already be regulated under the non-point source program. And he reminded the justices that this is a comprehensive scheme. Um, There are laws, including in Hawaii and, 
you know, across the country that would already explicitly prohibit the scenario he was talking about. It just wouldn't be under this specific portion of the Clean Water Act. Um, And Justice Breyer gave the other side some flack, too. He said he's worried about 500 million people suddenly discovering that they have to go apply for a permit to the EPA. And he gave an example of a miner who gets up every morning and throws his shaving water, you know, outside his house at Pikes Peak because there are miners at Pikes Peak. And I guess they're they're very old timey and use like bowls for shaving and have to throw out the water. But I think um, and he said that there's a very good chance that even that could end up um, in a river. And so it puts all kinds of people in a position of having to go get a permit. And he acknowledged that that's a big, complicated thing to do. So in some, I think some of the justices aren't completely comfortable with either side's reading of the statute. Um, but this is definitely one to watch because it could have a big, big effect. Next up, I recently spoke with the Busbys from Texas. Brett Busby is a justice on the Texas Supreme Court, and Aaron Busby is a professor at the University of Texas Law School. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Elizabeth. Now, Justice Busby, you clerked for Byron White and John Paul Stevens at the Supreme Court, and Aaron, you clerked for Stephen Breyer. So tell me a little bit about your clerkship experience. My clerkship, at least, was uh, really one of the greatest working experiences I've had, uh, Justice Breyer is is so bright and um, so interesting and thoughtful. And I like to joke that um, he is secure enough in how smart he is uh, that he's willing to sit and argue with, you know, the 20-something pipsqueaks who clerk for him uh, without them ever having to worry about um, showing proper deference or or curbing their ideas. Um, He just wants to get really the best product at the end. And so it was, it was just an incredible working experience. In terms of working for Justice White and Justice Stevens, I uh, had an amazing experience of being able to work for both in the same term uh, because Justice White was retired when I clerked for him, but he was still sitting some on the courts of appeals. And so I got one of my favorite memories of the clerkship is going with Justice White to Montana uh, to do a sitting on uh, – help him with a sitting on the Ninth Circuit one day in Billings and one day in Bozeman. And they had a big party for him at the Museum of the West in Bozeman. And and we're so excited to have him there as the the uh, man of the West that he was being from Colorado. He got a, a rousing reception there. And uh, we also would uh, have lunch frequently in the food court at Union Station. And I enjoyed hearing his stories about uh, different cases that he had worked on uh, in his time on the bench and his experiences in the um, uh, Kennedy Justice Department. And with Justice Stevens, uh, who was very gracious to take me on as an additional clerk, uh, shared with Justice White. One of my fondest memories of Justice Stevens is uh, having the opportunity to work on cases with him. And he would uh, read the briefs and he had a near photographic memory. And so he would come and sit down in the chair next to my desk and um say, well, Brett, let's talk about this case. And of course, I would have all of my notes and be ready for the conversation and uh, being able to have that discussion with him orally instead of through a bench memo uh, was one of the real highlights uh, of my of my clerkship. Now, did your bosses have any traditional outings or anything like that that they they would do with their clerks? Justice Breyer doesn't really have any traditional outings, but he's definitely up for uh, whatever the clerks are interested in. Uh, so um, 
while I was clerking, there's a, a very good but definitely not fancy uh, Chinese restaurant, or at least there was, called Mark's Duck House, uh, way out in Tyson's Corner. And a couple of times he drove out with us uh, to explore authentic Chinese food with us, which was always a lot of fun when we did something like that. And for Justice White, our, our traditions were the lunches in the at uh, the food court in Union Station with Justice Stevens. Uh, he would often have the clerks uh, come and have lunch with him in the courtyard on nice days and, and uh, talk about things other than the cases we were working on, which was a lot of fun. Both of them uh, earlier on in their careers uh, would do a lot of sports activities with their clerks. Justice White was famous for his basketball games and, and the roughness of, of his <laughs> uh, play. And uh, Justice Stevens uh, uh, was an avid tennis player, and uh, we didn't enjoy those activities with them the terms that we clerked, but that was one of their traditions earlier on in their careers. Now, we can't skip over what was probably the best part of your time at the Supreme Court, meeting each other. So tell me about how you met, and did all of the other clerks and the justices know that you were dating, or was it a secret? Well, we met early on in the clerkship, uh, as I recall, in the lunchroom that they have set aside for the clerks uh, in the cafeteria area so that we can talk about cases while we're down there having lunch without having to worry about confidentiality. And so I remember meeting Erin uh, down in the lunchroom and um, uh, one of her co-clerks uh, from the Court of Appeals, from her Court of Appeals clerkship, Jay Coe, was also clerking with us and um, uh, kind of played matchmaker a little bit and let each of us know that the other was available. And, and um, so uh, we uh, that's how we met and, and uh, uh, started dating, I guess, um, you know, partway into the clerkship. Yes, we started dating, I think, in October or so. Right. And we... Um, we thought we were keeping it really quiet, um, <laughs> and uh, around uh, the time of New Year's, my sister, who was living in New York, uh, called me, and she happened, uh, her college roommate, who was also living in New York, happened to be dating another clerk uh, who was clerking with us, and so my sister called me and said, if you think you're keeping uh, dating Brett secret, you're not because uh, Melissa just told me that you are. <laughs> so at that point, we decided probably everyone knew and we didn't have to try to be so quiet about it anymore. <laughs> uh, so let's fast forward a bit. Uh, so, Aaron, you teach the Supreme Court Clinic at the University of Texas. So tell me about the clinic and, and what kind of cases um, you all get involved in. Uh, well, the clinic is uh, me and two co-directors, uh, Lisa Eskow and Michael Sturley. And every semester we have um, somewhere around eight or ten students who are doing the class uh, for the first time. And then we often have two or three returning students. Uh, and we work on just about any kind of case as long as there is a client who is appropriate for us to represent because we represent everyone pro bono. Um, so we are not representing, say, Exxon or <laughs> any other large company, uh, but small companies, individuals, uh, not very flush municipalities are all sort of um, potential clients. 
but in terms of subject matter, as long as a case uh, has a chance of being granted, uh, we are probably interested in it. And we do uh, cert petitions, uh, we do merits cases, we uh, often will also do an amicus brief if we have time. Um, and so it's really almost anything. And uh, we also like to be flexible about how we work with uh, lawyers who have handled cases up to the point where we come in. Generally, we don't come in until a case um, has gone through uh, through either a state high court or a federal court of appeals. And um, sometimes we will come in at the point uh, where a lawyer is looking at uh, filing a petition for rehearing in one of those courts uh, to help out at that stage. Um, but we know that, that the lawyers who have gotten it that far, um, you know, have put in a lot of work, have relationships with the clients, often have a lot of subject matter expertise. And so we're pretty flexible about how we work with them at that point. Um, but it can be anything from admiralty to tort cases to First Amendment cases. Um, as long as it's, it's something appropriate for the court, we will take a look at it. Sounds like a great opportunity for the for the students to get involved in. Now, I think they learn so much, um, and I think they have fun too. Although they work awfully hard. <laughs> Good training for uh, for becoming lawyers. <laughs> yes. Now, Justice Busby, before becoming a judge, you were a litigator for a number of years. In addition to handling many cases in the the Texas Court of Appeals and the Texas Supreme Court. I understand that you argued one case at the U.S. Supreme Court. Can you tell us about that experience? Sure. It was a case called Day versus McDonough that I took on pro bono. It was a habeas corpus case. And the issue in the case was whether a uh, federal district court hearing a federal habeas corpus uh, petition could dismiss the petition as untimely under the one-year statute of limitations for federal habeas petitions uh, without the state raising uh, limitations as a defense. And so uh, I was able to find the case. Uh, my client had represented himself pro bono up through the, the 11th Circuit, and um, we identified uh, that there was a circuit split in the case, and so uh, sent him a letter and offered to file a cert petition on his behalf, and uh, he asked us to do that. And so I we were uh, fortunate enough to, to get the case granted, and uh, it was great experience for me being able not only to be lead counsel, counsel of record on the cert petition, but also crafting the amicus strategy and um, thinking about the issues that needed to be raised in the case. Uh, and uh, we were fortunate to have it granted. And I uh, was able to do the oral argument in that case. And I'll always remember when it was because it was about three weeks after our daughter, our first child, was born. And uh, I could not have asked for a more patient and understanding spouse uh, in terms of my need for preparation while, uh, while uh, we were also welcoming our first, uh, our first child. And um, I was able to do the Georgetown moot court and a couple of other moot courts uh, to be prepared for that. And uh, it, I think it, it definitely helped me feel more at ease in the courtroom for my first oral argument having clerked there. Uh, the membership of the court had changed a little bit since I had clerked there, but um, 
definitely, you know, knew the room and had obviously seen a lot of oral arguments in there. And, um, so I, I, that, um, definitely helped me in, in, um, putting my best foot forward in the oral argument. And, uh, we were ultimately unsuccessful. We, uh, lost the case six to three, uh, with an interesting lineup, uh, Justice Scalia writing the dissent in our favor, joined by Justices Thomas and Breyer, uh, and Justice Ginsburg writing the opinion, the majority opinion, uh, saying that, um, uh, in the interests of comedy, finality, and federalism, a, uh, federal trial court can dismiss a case to a sponte based on uh, limitations defense, even if it hasn't been pleaded. Uh, and the, um, uh, the dissent by Justice Scalia talking about the importance of the adversary system of justice and that it shouldn't be the job of a, of a trial court to impose a defense that another party, that the party has forfeited uh, who would benefit from that defense. And then also making the point that there are rule, federal rules dealing with when you can amend your answer late to raise an affirmative defense and that those requirements of the rule couldn't be met here. And so the court should just follow the rules and the general adversary system. You said that Justice Breyer joined the dissent in that case? Yes. So you you were able to pick up Aaron's former boss, but uh, <laughs> I, I didn't hear you but, mention Justice Stevens. Was uh, I'm assuming he was in the majority. He Yeah, he actually dissented from the judgment because he thought our case should be held for another case raising a related issue uh, that was still pending on the court's docket at the time. So I, I did get a dissent from him on the judgment, but not on the opinion. <laughs> well, there you go. That's a partial win for, from your former boss. <laughs> uh, so, so now, obviously, you're on the other side of the bench. So, which side do you prefer being on, asking the questions or answering the questions? Well, asking the questions is always nice, but I, I really enjoyed both uh, for for different reasons. Being able to uh, advocate uh, for uh, clients and and on issues you care about is is a real privilege uh, as a lawyer. Um, but I've always had a desire. My parents always taught me to be of use, and I've always had a desire for public service and to be able to serve uh, in the in the capacity as a judge is a, a real honor and a privilege for me. So I have to say that I enjoy the the public service aspect of being on the other side of the bench very much. So you've been a judge for about seven years now. So I imagine you've had quite a few law clerks of your own. Uh, so have you started to develop any any traditions with your clerks? Yes. Well, I, that's one of uh, the things that I really enjoy about being a judge is having my own clerks and um, the opportunity to pay it forward uh, for the wonderful mentorship that I received in my clerkships, uh, which really started me on my career. I thought I was going to be a tax lawyer coming out of law school doing tax litigation. And so my clerkships totally changed the course of my career. And uh, I want to offer that opportunity to, to have an, an in-depth experience of what appellate litigation is like uh, to my clerks. And so uh, we do, um, you know, I work very closely with them on their writing, obviously, and providing detailed feedback on drafts and explaining why I'm suggesting certain changes and uh, then uh, talking with them after oral arguments about, you know, what, what did they think about how, what advocates did well and could use improvement on and, and offering my thoughts on that. Uh, here at the Supreme Court of Texas, our 
law clerks are actually able to sit in on the conferences, which is very unusual. And so they get to hear the justices talking about the cases and how they're going to be decided uh, after argument and then also talking about the opinions and sometimes even participate in those conferences if they've written a memo that we're considering. So that's a great opportunity for them. Uh, and on the lighter side, we, uh, for the last several years in Houston, when I was on the Court of Appeals there, had a holiday cookie party um, every year that we started out just inviting friends of ours from the bar, but it's also become a mini uh, and from the neighborhood, but it's also become a mini reunion as uh, clerks, former clerks and now uh, spouses and kids also end up coming. And we have a great tradition in our neighborhood in Houston called Lights in the Heights before Christmas where everybody decorates and um they close off a couple of streets and have bands uh, on the porches, and, and uh, it's just a great festive time. So we have people over for decorating and baking uh, Christmas cookies, and then everybody gets to go out and enjoy the lights together. So that's been one of our special traditions. And uh, with us moving to Austin now, uh, we're going to have to find an equivalent uh, sort of celebration around Christmas time to bring everybody together. Uh, but I, we, we look forward to, to finding an opportunity to continue that tradition. That sounds wonderful. Maybe you could start a, start something similar in Austin. So tell me about I your chambers. Uh, do you have anything uh, to showcase your, your personality or where you're from? Sure. Well, I'm a seventh generation Texan, so there's a lot of Texas memorabilia in my chambers, as you might expect. Uh, my dad, um, is a big Texas history buff. And so through him, I acquired a model of uh, a Republic of Texas Navy ship that I keep in my library and some drawings of the of the Republic of Texas Navy. And then uh, also have uh, pictures of the justices that I clerked for that were autographed and also keep pictures of uh, all of my law clerks. Uh, this was a tradition that Judge Jerry Choflat had when I clerked for him on the 11th Circuit. He had pictures of all of his law clerks uh, around in the office, and he's had a couple of hundred now. So <laughs> they're starting to circle the, the, the office twice, but uh, I haven't had nearly that many, so I still have plenty of wall space. But I like uh, being reminded of the wonderful folks who've come and spent a year with me and uh, having those in chambers. I also spent some time growing up in New Mexico uh, where my grandmother uh, spent part of her time and so was exposed to some of the Native American cultures there. And so I have a, a couple, a little bit of Native American art in my chambers as well to remind me of that connection. So shifting gears a bit, a lot of um, our listeners at SCOTUS 101 are law students and young lawyers just starting out. Uh, so what advice do you have for, for young attorneys? And are there any books in particular that you would recommend that they read? One piece of advice, which is, is something I, I think I knew as a young lawyer, but it has come into focus much more uh, as, as my career has gone on, uh, is that uh, whatever you're doing, even if um, it might change, and my career has taken some twists that I never would have predicted, uh, but if you really throw yourself 100% into what you're doing and learn as much about it as you can and be as good at it as you can, um, it always pays off later and, and often in ways you wouldn't have predicted um, at all going into it. So that really is, is my advice to young lawyers. Um, and in terms of books, I, one book that I found uh, really helpful uh, for me and for my students uh, 
David Frederick, who has done some work with the Supreme Court Clinic, uh, wrote a book on uh, oral advocacy. I think it's called Supreme Court and Appellate Advocacy. And it really, um, it is just the go-to book for oral advocacy. It's, it's hard to beat for that. And as far as a piece of advice that I wish I had known early on, I've been an appellate advocate my whole career. And one of the things that I felt like was important at first starting out is getting an outline of the argument down and and being sure that I made all those points. And what I wish I had known and, and learned through my practice was, especially if they're in your brief, it's not necessarily important that you hit everything in your outline. Uh, and, and you should the more important thing is to be sure that you're welcoming questions from the court and answering those questions because it's really a gift to you if the court is sharing with you where they're having where they're getting hung up with your argument where they're wrestling with difficulties so that you can then uh, take advantage of that knowledge and and try to help them um, come out on your side in dealing with those difficulties and so that's something that I learned through um, through the first few years of my practice that would have helped me to know starting out. And as far as books go, I think uh, Scalia and Garner's Reading Law is a very helpful book for many different kinds of legal texts, and we deal with texts so much in a lot of different areas of the law that it's, uh, it's a really useful basic starting out resource. I also think it's great. I enjoy reading uh, about historical legal figures. And a number of years ago, I read the John Marshall biography, Definer of a Nation uh, by Gene Edward Smith. And it was really illuminating to understand more about the context of some of the big cases that that he had to deal with in um, really charting a course for the Supreme Court, uh, writing on a a nearly blank slate at that time and and the, the context for the issues that they were dealing with. And so I found that very interesting. Now, I have one final question. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Who'd like to start? Um, I'll start. You know, I think it would probably be William Taft, Um, in part uh, just because he did so many different things. I mean, in addition to being chief justice and president, he was secretary of war and, you know, provisional governor of of the Philippines and of Cuba. And, and so that would all be interesting. Um, but also he had a huge hand in making the court really what it is today and in modern times. Um, although he never got to see the court building, he was largely the force behind um, getting Cass Gilbert to design it and, and pushing to have the court moved into its own building. Um, and he also was largely behind uh, eliminating most of the court's uh, mandatory appeals. Um, when he became chief, they had a backlog of something like five years um, and it, because they had to take an appeal from any case that involved a constitutional issue. And you can see where where that was leading to, <laughs> to uh, way, way too many cases for the court to handle. And and so he did that and um, helped create the judicial conference and basically remade the federal courts uh, into something that worked so much better than it had. Um, and I just think it would be fascinating to hear about, you know, how he did that and, and why he thought it was so necessary and, and all of those things. And 
I really enjoyed the court building when we worked there. Um, and so it would be neat to hear about uh, what went into its design and its creation. And I would really welcome the opportunity to have a conversation with Justice Robert Jackson. He such, was such an amazing writer, and uh, I try to put a lot of work into to the opinion writing craft that and the opinions that I work on and would love the opportunity to talk with him about uh, his writing process and, and get some writing tips and recommendations from him, uh, but also would be really interested to hear about the experience of uh, him writing the West Virginia uh, State Board of Education versus Barnett case uh, and, uh, you know, holding that um, students couldn't be compelled to say the Pledge of Allegiance, uh, especially in the middle of World War II, uh, I'm sure was an interesting experience and, and would would really enjoy talking with him about that decision and, and uh, uh, the process of getting to that, uh, especially with um, – you know, with the Gobitis case uh, having come previously and then um, leading up to that. And then, of course, also his uh, his work as a prosecutor in Nuremberg uh, on leave from the Supreme Court and, and what that process was like. Well, I think those would both be excellent people to have a conversation with. Well, thank you both so much for joining me. It was our pleasure. Thank you for having us. We'll wrap up with a round of trivia, SCOTUS couples edition, or more like... Judicial Relationships Edition, because they aren't all couple-y That's okay. Besties? Are there some besties in here? Uh, not really. The besties were too, too, easy. too easy. Okay. Yeah, I want something tougher. Okay. okay. You ready? Yes. Uh, question one. Which Supreme Court justice married a law librarian after his frequent visits to the library when he was clerking? Is it a current justice? Yes. Married a law librarian. Is it Justice Alito? Yeah, exactly. Yes. Was that a hard one? <laughs> yeah, I think it was kind of hard. I didn't know this before. But Justice Alito met his wife, Martha, Martha Ann. at the library. Aww. Isn't that sweet? It is. Okay. The next one's super easy. I threw oh, you boy. I hope so. Which justice proposed to another? Oh, Chief Justice William Rehnquist proposed marriage to Sandra Day O'Connor when they were in law school together. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, it was not long ago that a biographer found the letter where he proposed. In olden times when people proposed by letter. Yeah. <laughs> I'm okay with that. Yeah. Makes it seem very official. Yeah. There's a record. Very contracty. <laughs> okay, third question. Um, although that relationship was unsuccessful, other judicial couples have made it. So who was the first married couple to serve on a federal appellate court together? The first couple to serve on the same appeals court? Yes. Oh, gosh. And they're still on that court today. They're still on that court. Okay. Um, whew, let me think. I feel like... Once you say it, I'm going to be like, oh, of course. But I'll give you a hint. It's the best circuit court. Okay, so it's the Fifth Circuit. <laughs> yes. Oh, I don't know who's... Are, are there... There's a secret couple? Like, do they not have the same last name? So if I didn't... They don't have the same last so name. So if I didn't know... Okay. Yeah. Mm. And I didn't realize that until I was clerking either. So it's Judge Carolyn King, um, and she is married to Judge Tom Reevely. Uh, both were appointed by Jimmy Carter... They got married after they were both on the court. 
um, in 2004. And so she was the chief justice at the time. And Judge Reevely had already taken senior status at that time. (laughs) Um, I don't know if this is absolutely true. I read an article somewhere that apparently they continued to hear cases together once they were engaged. Um, But I believe they stopped um, hearing cases together once they were married. I think it's the the law the rules are not clear whether that's actually appropriate or not. I know there's a lot of stuff going around mm, and fraternizing like statute, with fellow judges. But I don't know if that's like a limit on the president's appointment power. I don't know. It's complicated. But I think a lot of people in these situations just err on the side of caution and don't sit together. <laughs> Definitely. Okay. Uh, number four. Which former SCOTUS clerk and one-time SCOTUS hopeful served together with his brother on the Eighth Circuit for more than a decade? Okay. Former—wait, so uh, somebody who was a clerk? Yeah. And somebody who was a SCOTUS hopeful? No, it's the same person. He clerked for the Supreme Court, was a judge, and was considered for a Supreme Court nomination. And he served on the same court as— his brother. His brother. For more than a decade. It's a tough one. Okay. Supreme Court hopeful who has a brother. Could you give me—I mean, telling me the president that considered him would be too much, but maybe a, an era? An era. I mean, like, um, is it— You were alive? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you the president. Because you're probably not going to get this. It was Bill Clinton. Oh, gosh. I, uh, man, and I even just started reading the conversa- Conversations with RBG book, and they talk about some of the people that Clinton interviewed. So I wonder if it was that seat. Yeah, I don't know. You're going to have to tell okay. me. It was Judge Richard Arnold, um, and he was another Carter appointee. He had clerked for Justice Brennan. Okay. And President Clinton almost nominated him to Harry Blackman's seat. But ultimately ended up choosing Stephen Breyer because Judge Arnold um, had some serious health issues. Um, So he sat with his brother, Judge Morris Arnold, who was originally appointed to a district court by President Reagan and then elevated to the Eighth Circuit um, by George H.W. Bush. And they sat together for 12 years and they did sit on panels together and Mm. even heard on bond cases together. Interesting. I wonder... If uh, Justice Breyer has had any, he, he has a brother. Yeah, he's a judge. I wonder if he's had any, a twin brother, right? Or no, no, not no, not a twin. So. I'm sorry, I'm I'm confusing him with with somebody else. He has a brother who's a district court judge. I wonder if he's if they've had any of his cases. No, I think um, Justice Breyer recuses from what he needs to his yeah. brother. I don't know if he officially has to. Well, like the justices the make up the their own rules basically, but that would be interesting to look into. Yeah. Okay. Okay, next question. (laughs) Which justice's wife made his law clerks serve as bouncers at their dinner party? Which justice's wife made law clerks serve serve as bouncers? Is this a a current justice? No. Oh, boy. Okay. Who would need bouncers? Hmm. Is it... Uh, could you give me like maybe a 50 year span? 
<laughs> I'm just going to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So it was Justice Brandeis and his wife, Alice, um, who was apparently very protective of him. And she made the law clerks force everyone to leave by 10 p.m. so that <laughs> Justice Brandeis didn't get overly tired. <laughs> just thought that was so funny. That's great. Um, I got that from my SCOTUS cookbook called Table for Nine, which oh. we've previously talked about. And I have one more bonus question because it was on the very same page and I just had to. Okay. So which justice's wife made his law clerk serve finger sandwiches at her weekly teas? Man, that's like a weekly tea parties. Real and diva. Made law clerks serve finger sandwiches. I don't know. Was it one of William O. Douglas's four wives? No, it was Harlan Fisk Stone's wife, Agnes. Mm, Agnes. Agnes. It sounds like taking advantage of those poor law clerks. I know. Some some harsh wives. Definitely. Harsh Scotus wives. Okay, well, uh, those were very informative and educational uh, for me (laughs) and for the listeners. Um, So uh, hopefully next time I can redeem myself the next time. They were really tough. I'm in the hot seat. Uh, But before we wrap up, um, we're going to play a preview, uh, a longer preview of the new documentary, Created Equal, um, that's all about Justice Clarence Thomas. Someplace in my life, the roads had split off. I was no longer in the world that was my comfort zone. I was never going to be a part of that world. The problem is I can never go back completely to the world I came from. I wandered the streets by myself. I was six. You were hungry and didn't know when you'd eat note said, I like Martin Luther King. You open up the inside, and it just had the word dead. I would rather down the highways of Alabama than make a butchery of my country. I prayed for guidance, but instead of comfort, I found only sorrow and confusion. He said that I was to leave his house, the only real home I'd ever known. Where could I go? What would I do? So you'd still like to serve on the Supreme Court? I'd rather die than withdraw from the process. I saw what I had become. I didn't even care about it. I didn't care about getting hurt. It was bad. We're supposed to be revolutionaries. I'm just angry, lashing out at every single thing decided to vote for Ronald Reagan. It was a giant step for a black man. I will nominate Judge Clarence Thomas to serve as Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Professor, do you swear That's when it all heck broke loose. To help you guys. I do. Judge Thomas began to use work situations to discuss sex. Not at all sure that Clarence Thomas is going to survive this. As a black American, as far as I'm concerned, it is a high-tech lynching. I mean, come on, we know what this is all about. This is the wrong black guy. He has to be destroyed. Just say it. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a five-star rating. 
Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101, and you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Thalia Rampersad, and Mark Guiney. For more information, visit heritage.org.